Today I'm going to begin a brand new series talking about how to stay positive in a negative world. And you know, this is appropriate any time, but especially after all of this political stuff that we've been exposed to and each side just tearing the other one up and all of the talk show hosts just presenting worst case scenarios. I tell you, if you haven't been uh, touched by all of the negativism in this world, you just aren't paying attention. That's all I've got to say. I mean, we live in a fallen world and there is just constant bombarding of all of these negative things. And then you add to that just natural life where people experience sickness and there's relational problems and just all of the things that go on in a fallen world. I tell you, there is a pressure in this world that just if you were to allow it, it would just totally defeat you. I've often told people before that life is a terminal experience. You know, most people don't look at it this way, but really, it doesn't matter how young you are, how healthy you are, unless Jesus comes back, we're all headed towards a grave. And if you were to just look at things from that perspective, man, it could defeat you. Here's something that Jesus said. He was talking about the end times, and he made a number of statements about how that uh, wars would increase, people would cry out uh, peace and safety, and yet there wouldn't be any, and and there would be earthquakes and all of these terrible things happening. And um, in verse 10, this is Matthew chapter 24, verse 10. Jesus said, And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. You know, that is an amazing statement right here. This is saying that because of our surroundings, what's going on, not necessarily in you, but what's going on around you, it says the love of many shall wax cold. You know, this word that is used waxed right here is really uh, significant. If you were to go study this word, it really goes back to the way that they used to make candles back in this time. And they would take a wick and they would dip it in hot wax and then they would lift it up. And I mean, just keep it out for one second or something. That wax would instantly cool off and form a little layer on that um, wick. And then they would just keep doing this over and over. They would do it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And this is how they made uh, candles. And, it would, and that's what this is referring to. That because of just the constant bombarding of all of these negative things and the ungodliness that is going on all around us, it says the love of many waxes cold. In other words, it's a process. It's just like a callus on your hand. It happens layer after layer after layer. And over a period of time, you get to where you're, you just become calloused, hardened towards the love of God because of just the constant bombardment of all of this ungodliness around us. And so I say these things just to say that this is a problem that even Jesus addressed and said that in the end times, people's love is going to wax cold because of iniquity abounding around them. You know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time going into talking about all of the negative stuff around us because we hear this all of the time. But let me just mention that, you know, it is definitely... Uh, being just crammed down our throat every single negative thing that the world can find. Good news doesn't sell. People capitalize on all of the bad news. And if there isn't any bad news, they will make some up. They will make predictions about all of these things. 
You know, I've said this before, but I just want to keep pointing this out, that I was in Scotland, and I, I forget the exact year now. I think this was 2005. If I miss the dates, it's really not important. The point is that I was in Scotland when they had this bird flu or avian flu uh, outbreak over there and you could drive through the countryside and you could see smoke just going up everywhere where they were piling all of these chickens and poultry all kinds of different things putting them together and they were killing and burning these animals I was over I was also over there when they had the mad mad cow uh, disease outbreak and I mean you could drive by and see cattle piled up 20 and 30 feet high and just burning them and I mean it was just all over the country and I was there and I heard the leading expert in the British healthcare system interviewed. And they said, is there a danger of this avian flu mutating and getting to where it could affect humans? And uh, what could be the potential effect of that? And this guy said, and I think again, this was in 2005. He says, there is no question that it will happen. It will happen. It's just a matter of how long. But he says, I can guarantee you that within two years, one-third of the world's population will die from avian flu. <laughs> That's a pretty dire prediction. And that was in, I think it was October of 2005. But anyway, two years exactly. I was back in Scotland. I read in a USA Today paper that there had been a total of 12 deaths worldwide from this avian flu. And so the point that I'm making is that, see, even if it's not reporting on something bad that has happened, they come up with all these dire predictions. They're talking about how terrible all of these things are going to be. Uh, they just, it's just the way that the mindset of the unbelievers are. They are constantly focused on everything that can go wrong. You know, in contrast to this, let me just say that recently we had the opening of our Karis Bible College uh, for the 2012-2013 school year. And did you know the first day of our school opening is just, I mean, it is amazing. People are so excited. People are just praising God. Some of them have spent three, four, five years believing God to get here. This is the fulfillment of effort that they've been putting into it. And I tell you, it's electrifying. When you are in that auditorium, we are praising God and people are just shouting and praising God. And I mean, there's nothing like it. I had two or three different people come up and say, there's nothing like opening day of Bible college. And I was standing at the back of this auditorium and I was thinking about this and, and thinking about, God, what makes this day different than any other day? I mean, these same people who are so excited right now, give it a couple of months and after they've had to get up at 6 o'clock every morning to get ready and get their kids ready and get to school, and after they've had to, you know, deal with tuition, and after they are struggling to find a job and all these other things begin to happen, these exact same people come in and they don't ex display this same enthusiasm. And I was at the back of this auditorium just praying about this and saying, God, what's the difference? And you know what the Lord spoke to me? It was because on the first day they were just anticipating. It was hope is what it is. They were hoping and seeing the positive things. Hope is anticipation about all of the positive things that are going to come. When you think about all of the bad things that are going to happen, that's what you call dread. That's what you call fear. It's the opposite of hope. And hope is a powerful force. And the reason that people were praising God and so excited was because they were only thinking on the positive. 
things that were going to happen. They were envisioning good things. And because of it, man, it just caused an enthusiasm, an excitement among the people. But then as life sets in on you, it's just like this scripture that Jesus was talking about, that because of all of the iniquity, because of all of these other things around us, it makes your love wax cold. And God is not the one who cuts off the spigot. God is not the one who's different two months into the school year than he was on the opening day. God is never the variable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. What changes is our focus. And when you get to where you all of a sudden get caught into the everyday routine, the mundane things that it takes to just walk through life, and you, it's like uh, the 14th chapter of the book of Matthew, Jesus uh, called Peter to walk on the water. And as long as Peter kept his eyes on Jesus, he was able to walk on top of that water. But then he took his eyes off of Jesus. He saw the wind and the waves, which had nothing to do with him walking on the water. He couldn't have walked on the water if it had been a perfectly calm day. It didn't have anything to do with it, but what it did, it took his eyes off of the Lord and put his eyes on the supernatural, or or, excuse me, on the natural. He started relating to things just as a natural person and he began to sink and the Lord had to reach out and lift him up. And it's the same thing with us. If we could keep ourselves focused on what God has said, on the promises of God, and all of the good things that God has done, then you could maintain your positiveness in the midst of a negative world. You could maintain your faith in the midst of a situation where the doctor tells you you're going to die. You could maintain your joy and your peace even if a relationship is falling apart. Regardless of what's going on in the world around you, you can stay positive in the midst of a negative world, but I can guarantee you it's not going to happen without effort. It will not happen without you making a deliberate attempt to do it. And I believe that it's absolutely crucial. As we go through this series, some of the things I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be talking about people who did this. We're going to talk about David, about Moses, about Abraham, about just so many biblical examples of people that were in, I mean, crisis situations. You can look at the three children, Hebrew children, you know, that were in a very pagan culture. And uh, let me just insert this, that one of the reasons I'm teaching on this is because of all of the political stuff that has gone on in this election year and people just bombarding us with all of these dire predictions and stuff like this. I tell you, we have been just saturated with all of this criticism and negativism. And yet uh, the three Hebrew children, Daniel, were in a uh, governmental system where the The king actually built an image and commanded people to worship him. Paul lived in a system where the king promoted himself. Caesar promoted himself as God and accepted worship. I mean, there was injustice being done that makes our situation look wonderful in comparison to those. I'm not got my head in the sand. I admit that we've got a lot of problems and America needs to come back to God. And so I am not whitewashing anything, but I'm saying compared to the government system that Daniel and the Hebrew children operated in, compared to the system that uh, Paul operated in, man, we are blessed, blessed, blessed. And yet these people were able to maintain their faith and be positive. I mean, you can look at Paul in in the book of Philippians. And he was in prison. 
He, he stayed in prison for two years in the land of Judea. Then he was in transit to Rome for about a year. He was shipwrecked. And then he was in prison in uh, Rome for two years. So a total of at least five years, not including all of the other times. And yet he wrote the book of Philippians from prison. And there is more mention of joy, rejoicing, rejoiced, all of these things. It's mentioned over 17 times in the book of Philippians. And I mean, Paul is just rejoicing and talking about the goodness of God. And he had been imprisoned unjustly and he was able to still rejoice. And matter of fact, in Philippians chapter 4 is where he gave us a command, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I think one reason he said, again, I say rejoice is because he thought people are going to say, you can't mean what you're saying. You're in prison. This couldn't mean what it looks like. And so he just said it again. He says, just in case you missed it again, I'm saying rejoice. We can praise God in all situations. We can be so positive in the midst of this negative world that it's just like water off a duck's back. All of this ungodliness does not have to affect your love, your commitment, your faith, your positiveness. But you are going to have to renew your mind and you are going to have to begin to look at some things differently. And I'm telling you that regardless of all of the negativism that you hear, there are more people turned on to the Lord in this world than there have ever been. There are more people that are being healed and set free. I can personally testify to over... I counted this years ago and since then... Uh, it's increased. But I know over 38 people who have either been raised from the dead or who have raised people from the dead. And one of our ministers, Mike Cash, who we have him on our uh, healing journeys, and he's the one that had this big cancer on his chest. And over an eight-year period of time, it just it was terrible. But he got hold of the Word, and he's been healed. He's now a student here in our Bible college. He answers the phones back there. And just a couple of weeks ago, he prayed for somebody on our phones that was raised from the dead. We have, we've had this happen a number of times in our phone center. So anyway, I think I could safely say that I know of over 50 people that have either been raised from the dead or who have raised someone from the dead. Did you realize that in all of the Bible, there is only an account of eight people being raised from the dead? And I can personally account for 50 people that I've seen raised from the dead. I don't know if you understand it or not, but I'm telling you, God is moving. Awesome things are happening, but the average person doesn't have that perspective. The average person has let their zeal, their love wax cold because of the iniquity abounding in the fact that our media today is just promoting it. And it's not only the liberal media. You go into the average church today and I can guarantee you the way that they would approach this is to start talking about how bad our nation is and how that we're going to the dogs. They would tell you about all of the bad things and then they'll spend five minutes, but there's hope in Jesus. If you spend 45 minutes focused on the negative and five minutes focused on the positive, you're going to overall have a negative attitude. And I tell you, a believer is the only person on the face of this earth that really has a right to be optimistic and to be joyful and excited about what's happening. God is alive and well, and God is not sitting on His throne, wringing His hands and wondering how He's going to pull this thing out and whether or not it's going to work. I guarantee you, God is moving in a powerful way. And the more you focus on all of these good things, the more positive you will become. 
A verse that goes right along with what I've been saying is Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, where it says, The Lord will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon him because he trusts in him. If you don't have perfect peace, then it's because your mind isn't stayed upon God. There is no other explanation. If you were to keep your mind stayed upon the Lord, the Bible promises that you would have perfect peace. There is an antidote in the Word of God for whatever you're experiencing. If you're dealing with a physical problem, by the stripes of Jesus you have been healed. And if you really believe that and were more focused on what God said than what the doctor said, you would have perfect peace. I believe that without any exception. There is a scripture that promises that God will supply all of our need. There's so many examples of how God miraculously, like the 26th chapter of the book of Genesis, uh, in a year of famine that would, would relate to some of the financial hardships that we've seen in the world in the last three or four years. In a year of famine, Isaac went out at the word of the Lord and sowed seed in a year of famine when everybody else had deserted their fields and had gone to uh, Egypt because that's where the water was, that's where the crops and the abundance was, and they forsook their inheritance. The Lord told uh, Isaac to stay and so in a year of famine, and he received a hundredfold return in a year of famine. There are scriptures, see, that show you how to prosper, even in hard economic times. There are scriptures that deal with whatever you're dealing with, and there is no justification. There are reasons why people get discouraged and bummed out, but there isn't a justification for it if you're a believer. I guarantee you, we've read the book, I've read the back of the book, we win, God wins. It's all going to work out and it doesn't matter what the devil does to you. I can guarantee you if you focus on the word of God, you can still be positive. You can still have faith. You can maintain your joy regardless of what's going on around you. And I promise you, you need this. The way you think in your heart is the way you're going to be. Proverbs 23, 7. And if you think on all of the depressing things, negative things in this world, you're going to be depressed and you're going to be negative. And we are a generation that is unlike any other generation of Christians that have ever existed in the sense that we have the news of this world piped into our home, on our telephones, on all of your devices and stuff, and you 24 hours a day are being bombarded by all of the negative things that are happening. They don't tell you about the thousands of planes that land safely. They tell you about the one that crashed. They don't tell you about all of the millions of events where there are millions and millions of people together and they gather together and everything's just fine. They'll tell you if there's a riot. They'll tell you if somebody came in and shot and if somebody was killed. And I understand the logic behind all that, but I'm saying that we don't get told all of the good news. There are so many awesome things happening. God is moving in a powerful way, but if you are just fed a steady diet of all of the negative things that are going on, then I guarantee you it will cause you to be negative. It will cause you to be depressed. I actually have said this before, that if you aren't depressed, you aren't paying attention unless you are specifically taking the Word of God and countering this negativism.
Jesus said. He was talking about the end times. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, He said that because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. He didn't say that the love of just a few, or it's possible that this could happen. He said that this would be one of the signs of the end time, that because iniquity abounds, that the love of many will wax cold. I don't believe that it is destined, that it has to happen to you, but I'm saying that this is the normal. This is the way that the vast majority of believers are going because we are in a society that I believe iniquity is abounding, but then it's being pumped into your home and you're being fed a steady diet of it. And if you aren't careful, this is going to cause your heart to become cold and insensitive. You're going to be discouraged instead of encouraged. You're going to have doubt instead of faith. And it takes effort to be able to counter this. You know, over in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, there's just so many places in Scripture that says this exact same thing, talks about how to counter all this negativism. But in Hebrews chapter 12, right after he had talked about all of these great men and women of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, many people call it the Hebrews Hall of Fame or the Heroes of Faith. And it's all of these people who did these incredible exploits in the midst of terrible situations. And then he comes back in chapter 12 and he says, Wherefore, that links it to all of these things that he was saying about these great men and women who've gone before us. He says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. Boy, these are powerful things that are being said. If you aren't considering Jesus, the word consider means to study, ponder, deliberate, examine, or focus on, meditate. If you aren't focused upon Jesus, then it says you will become weary and faint in your mind. Notice where our weariness and our fainting comes from. It's from the way we think. You may not be thinking, I want to be depressed. I want to be discouraged. You may have good intentions, but you are allowing this world and the negativism of this world to come in and influence you and affect you. And the only antidote for that is that you have to consider, study, ponder, deliberate, examine, focus upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, or you will be wearied and you will faint in your mind. That's just what the scripture says. There's no other option. And again, I'm saying this to people who live in a society and in a generation in this information age where we pay people big bucks to have all of this negative news and negative stuff pumped into our home. I get emails all of the time from people who talk about that they woke up in the middle of the night and heard me on television because they leave their television on all of the time just to have the noise going on. You know, I'm on television. I am not against television, but I'm telling you, there is a bunch of trash on television. There is a bunch of negative stuff on television. You got more than enough problems without having all of these other problems of other people and the other problems of the world pumped into your home. 
And with our technology today, you can have the problems on the other side of this world instantly portrayed before you. You can feel the exact same things. Did you know previous generations didn't know this? Even when I was in Vietnam, did you know it took over two weeks for news of what was happening to come to Vietnam? I know some of you that are younger may think uh, it couldn't be so, but I'm telling you that, uh, you know, when Nixon uh, sent the troops into Laos, uh, we heard about that because we were there and there were some of our troops that, uh, you know, were going in there. And over in Vietnam, people thought this was wonderful because uh, from where I was, you could see the uh, trucks, these deuce and a halfs, driving down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and they were bringing ammunition and soldiers and things like this that were going to be fighting against us and killing some of our fellow soldiers. And we could see them, but they were off limits. They were across the line, and you couldn't fire at them, and they just had freedom to do whatever they wanted to. And I remember when they finally sent some troops into Laos to intervene and to deal with this. Everybody, every single person that I was aware of in Vietnam cheered and shouted like, man, this is awesome because finally we're going to quit playing games. We're going to get in here and we're going to fight and we're going to win this war and we're going to go home. But two weeks later, it was about two weeks later, then we heard about the Kent State riots and about the people that had been killed and about how that the anti-war movement responded to this move. And it was two weeks and something later. And I tell you, until we heard the fact that we didn't have the support of the people back home and stuff, until then, everybody was optimistic. Everybody was excited. I mean, there was actually joy among the people because we thought, finally, we've taken the restraints off. We're going to get this job done and we're going to win. And then two weeks later, you hear this and immediately everybody's attitude changed when you realize that, man, we were now vilified. People came home from Vietnam and they had to change out of their uh, military stuff and wear civilian clothing because you could be spit upon and criticized and and all these kind of things. You know, back in the, it was a different day. It took two weeks to even hear about things. Previous generations, it could have taken a month or more before they heard about the things that had happened on the other side of the world. And much of this stuff was never reported. And certainly all of the dire predictions about everything that was going to happen, those things didn't happen. And by the time they got to you and is a month and two old, you know what? You'd been already proven that those things were wrong. And it was just a different day and age. I believe it was actually easier to stay positive in those days because we weren't just inundated with that. But we live in a day and age where I guarantee you, you have to put your head in the sand to keep from hearing all of the terrible things that are going on, all of the people that are doing these bad, bad things. I mean, it is just, we're inundated with it. And this verse says that we have to focus, consider Jesus and focus on him or you will become weary and you will faint in your mind. You may not have looked at it this way, but you know what? This is exactly what's happened to you. You're weary. You're weary. You're trying to do the right thing. You're believing for change in your personal life, in your nation, in your circumstances and yet, just contrary to that, you are constantly bombarded with all of the negativism of this world. And you are weary. You're frustrated. And in your own mind, you're fainting. There are thoughts of giving up. What's the use? Why do we even do this? You know why all of this is happening? People say, well, it's because things are so bad. No, it's because you aren't considering Jesus. You aren't focused upon Jesus only. 
You know, if you'll back up into the second verse, I already read this, but in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a great key right here. This tells us how Jesus was able to endure the cross and despise the shame. If you look that word up in the Greek, it literally means to disesteem, to devalue. He devalued all of the suffering. And the way he was able to endure the cross, the pain and the suffering of the cross, the humiliation, the mocking, the rejection, and even the rejection by his own father who he loved, with all of his heart, his own father turned away and he had to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How was Jesus able to do those things? You know, a lot of people just write this off as, well, he was God. But Jesus was also man. It says that he, in Hebrews chapter 4, I believe it is, it says he was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus had every temptation. He had flesh. He did not want to die. He did not want to suffer mocking and humiliation. And when you add to this the fact, you know, like that song that we've often sung, that he could have called 10,000 angels. Jesus did not have to do this. It's not like he was powerless and there was no option, and so he just had to put up with this. Jesus could have come down from that cross at any time. Jesus could have called for 10,000 angels. When they mocked him and said, prophesy if you're the Christ, who is it that struck you? He could have told them things that would have brought every single person to their knees. Jesus had absolute power and authority to change that situation and yet he voluntarily went through this because it was the only way to forgive you and me. We couldn't pay for our own sins. He had to pay for it. He had to bear it. And so he voluntarily submitted. How could he go against his own natural feelings of self-preservation and wanting to justify himself and stand against those who were mocking him? The scripture right here says, for the joy that was set before him. Let me just point out that if Jesus would have thought the way that most of us thought, Jesus would never have been able to endure the cross and despise the shame and come out victorious on the other side. The way you think about situations determines your outcome. If Jesus would have thought like you and I have been trained to think, and if he would have only thought about, this is unfair what they're doing to me. I'm their creator. They're mocking me. They are saying that I'm powerless. They're saying, if you really have any power, display it. If he would have thought about us, and if it would have been just himself, that he was thinking about, I guarantee you, he would never have submitted to all of this. He would have exercised that power. But the way he was able to do it, it says for the joy that was set before him. You know what this is saying? That, that Jesus drew on the power of the Holy Spirit and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was able to see past the cross. He was able to see that he would rise again, that he would bring redemption to people. I really believe that Jesus looked down through eternity and saw the millions and the billions of people's lives that were going to be set free and changed because of what he endured. He saw you and he saw me. He saw people who were just totally hopeless without him 
And he saw our lives changed. And because of that, that's what enabled him to stay positive, to stay in faith, to stay the course and to do what God called him to do. You know, if he would have thought the way you and I thought, and if he would have just been thinking about himself and looking at the moment and thinking about the hurt and the pain and the suffering, if he hadn't have looked past that and have seen the, the end result, he couldn't have endured this. This is saying that this is the way he endured is because he, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And there's a lesson in this for us that we have to do the same thing. We live in a fallen world. Sin is abounding. There is a spirit of antichrist. There is ungodly things going on. And as I've pointed out already, all of this ungodliness is being amplified and magnified by our news media that just crams it down our throat. And so we even have a skewed impression about it and, it's, and it even has more of an impact than just uh, what it should without all of this emphasis. We are living in the midst of a negative world and if you focus on those things, you will become overwhelmed with frustration. You will become weary. You will faint in your mind. You are going to have to look past all of the junk that you're hearing about and you're going to have to recognize that despite all of this stuff where sin abounds, grace abounds greater. That regardless of how ungodly some people are and how, how these things are going, that there is awesome things happening. There are more people coming alive to the things of God and being touched by the Spirit of God than have ever happened in the history of the world. You will often hear people talk about how Muslims are increasing in other religions and stuff like that. And they will talk about this. But this fact remains that Christianity is still the dominant influence on the face of the earth. There are more people converting to Christianity at a greater percentage and a greater rate than any other religion on the face of the earth. You know, a good friend of mine, Arthur Blessed, he's the guy that carries the cross. I imagine most of you have heard of him or seen him. And Arthur Blessed has walked and carried that cross in every nation of the world. I forget exactly how many nations that is, but 190 something, 200, whatever it is. He's been in every nation, every people group. He's been in war zones talking about all of the wonderful things and how that in the darkest place on the face of the earth, the place where there had people had never heard of Jesus before, he would walk in with the cross and people would just fall down and receive Jesus and be set free. And he was sharing about how that, man, it's the greatest day for preaching the gospel that there ever is. He's been to the darkest places on the earth and where it's dark, the light shines brighter. I'm telling you, we've got a lot of things to be positive about, but you are going to have to be like Jesus. You're going to have to focus on the good things. You're going to have to hear these good reports about what God is doing. And just like Jesus, you have to focus on the joy that is set before you. You have to focus on the fact that we win, regardless of how bad ungodliness comes, regardless of what happens. Even if the doctor tells you you're going to die, I believe in healing and I believe that you can be well. And we see great miracles. And you do not have to put up with sickness and disease. But you know what? If nothing else, look past.
past this physical life. And we have been promised that if we are absent from the body, we are instantly present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And you are going to be in the presence of the Lord where there is no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sickness, no more disease. And if you can look past your immediate situation, even if you don't see the deliverance right here, you are going to live in eternity and under the blessing of God, in the presence of God, and you've got nothing to gripe and complain about. See, if you could be like Jesus, and for the joy that is set before you, he had a lot of suffering to go through, but man, there was going to be infinite joy after he rose from the dead. Likewise, regardless of what you're going through, you can win in this life, and even if you don't win here, you're going to win in eternity. You can't lose for winning. And if you would do that and consider Jesus the author and the finisher of your faith, then you would not be weary and you would not faint in your mind. I'm not saying this to condemn you. I'm saying it to point things out. People just feel hopeless. They feel helpless. Like, how could I be any other way? People love to make their problems just so big that nobody knows the problems I feel. We've even written songs about it about I'm just a poor wayfaring pilgrim, us trudging through the world below. Nobody knows my trials. Nobody knows my problems. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. That means that everybody is dealing with the exact same thing. The devil may put yours in a different package, put a different wrapper, a different bow on it, but the content is the same. We are all facing similar things. And anytime you get to thinking that you're in a worse situation than anybody else and nobody knows your situation, that you are special, you've had more bad things happen to you than anybody else. The moment you adopt that kind of thinking, then you exempt yourself from the solutions that are found in the Word of God because after all, you're an exception. Those things don't apply to you. But again, I go back to Isaiah 26, 3. The Lord will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him. And he didn't put any qualifications. He didn't say, except for this group, except for this situation. It's just the way that it is. Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Carnal mindedness, carnal is a word that most people don't really use a lot and they relate that to being just terrible, like sinful, like you're a murderer, a rapist, something extreme. But the word carnal just means of your five senses. It means to be dominated by what you can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. Don't take into account the spiritual realm. Don't think on God and the promises in heaven and how it's going to be more than worth it, anything you endure down here. You just look at things in the natural realm and if you are naturally minded, carnally minded, it produces death. You know, it would be accurate to describe that verse, Romans 8, 6, as carnal mindedness equals Death. If you presented it as a mathematical formula and just, just carnal mindedness equals death, that would be appropriate. And then it says, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So to be spiritually minded is to be word minded. If you evaluated everything in light of the word, if you processed every piece of information through what the Word says, all it'll produce is life and peace. 
Notice it's linking peace to your thoughts. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Put that together with Isaiah 26, 3. The Lord will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him. And there's many other scriptures. You just have to come to this conclusion that if you have a lack of peace, it is not because of your circumstances. It's not because of what's going on in the world. It's because you aren't considering Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. It's because you aren't spiritually minded. And on the positive side of this, if you become spiritually minded, if all you do is think according to the Word of God, all you're going to get is Word of God results. I know some of you think that I'm simplifying this and making it's not real. It doesn't work this way. But it does work this way. It's just the fact that very few of us are really focused on God the way that we should be. You know, here's a personal testimony for you. Then on March the 23rd, 1968, I had this miraculous encounter with the Lord. And I've mentioned this a lot. I'm not going to go into detail, but I mean, I just fell in love with God. I was so in love with God that I lost my desire to eat, to sleep. I went for four months and I never slept more than an hour at a time. I never sat down for a meal. And I know some of you think I'm weird, but I think you're weird. I'm just telling you, this is my story I got so in love with the Lord, I couldn't hardly exist. I couldn't hardly stand it. And then I got drafted and sent to Vietnam. And I went through a lot of tough stuff in Vietnam. But you know what? I loved God so much that it was just like water off a duck's back. All of the things that were going on, death and and danger and I received a lot of criticism, a lot of rejection for my stand for the Lord and stuff. And it just didn't penetrate me because just like these verses that I've used, I was looking at Jesus. I was so in love with Him. It just, in a sense, made me in a bubble. And, you know, one of the ways that I saw this was 20 years after I was out of Vietnam, I was up in Chicago, Illinois, and I was ministering in a church. And a man came up and gave me a book. And there were 12 testimonies of people who had been in Vietnam and it described the terrible things that they went through and then how they turned to the Lord, how the Lord saved them. And it was just a tremendous testimony about how God intervened in people's lives. And it made the best seller list on the uh, New York Times and um, I forget all of the details. But anyway, it's a really well-written book. And so this guy signed it, and I knew he wanted me to read it. And the next night, he was going to ask me, did I read his testimony? It was only about 20 pages, his personal testimony. So I read it because um, I knew he was going to ask me about it. And it was powerful. And I was so blessed, I decided, well, I'll read another one. And I read it, and it was powerful. And I wound up staying up all night long reading that entire book. It was probably... 200 pages, 12 different testimonies. And as I read it, there were three of those people that were there the exact same time that I was there. Two of them were in my division, the AmeriCal division. And I'm not sure because there weren't enough details in the book, but one of them who was in my division talked about being on an LZ, uh, a landing zone base, that was overrun by the Vietnamese. And he described what it was like and the terrible things and the fear. And he just described this experience from an unbeliever's viewpoint. And I was a chaplain's assistant 
And I actually went out with a chaplain to this LZ called LZ Prep. It was right on the Laotian border. It was just a very small area. It probably wasn't more than a hundred feet across, maybe a hundred foot diameter, a hundred feet diameter. And um, while we were there, the chaplain and I went out and it was, I was a Protestant chaplain's assistant, but he went out and in a sense did the same thing as the Catholic chaplain would do, administered last rites, knowing that this hill was going to be overrun and most of the people were going to be killed. So I went out with him. We held a service. While we were in that area for four or five hours, we took something like 170 mortar rounds hit inside of that perimeter. And we were in bunkers that could withstand it. But I mean, we were just being pummeled. You could see the rifle fire from the Vietnamese as they charged this hill. And I was with the chaplain and we got taken out. And that very day, the Vietnamese overran that hill and killed most of the people on that hill. And I was there. I went through. I'm not sure that that's the exact same situation, but I think it was. He was in the same division. He didn't name the the LZ that he was on, but I think it was the same one that I was there. And anyway, here's my point. As I read this story 20 years later, and I saw it through the eyes of an unbeliever, fear came on me. I mean, I had terror come on me. It's like I relived that situation from the perspective of an unbeliever. And fear and terror came on me and it took me a day or two to pray and to get rid of that fear and to get my equilibrium back and get back to being normal. And 20 years after I went through that experience, I experienced what I guess an average normal person would have experienced. But I can tell you what I was going through. I remember that day. I remember being there and I mean we were being just bombarded and I could see the muzzle fire from the Vietnamese as they charged the hill. I had my M16 pointed down the hill. I never fired it because the people were so far away that there's no way you could be accurate and I was just waiting and we left before they actually overran the hill. But I mean I had my M16 pointed down the hill. I was facing the prospect of us being overrun and killed. And you know what I was thinking? I was feeling so much joy. I was thinking, Jesus, this is absolutely awesome. I could be with you before this day is over. I could be in heaven. I could be seeing you face to face. And man, I was having joy and peace. And I was praying for these Vietnamese. I was thinking, God, if I die, I know where I'm going. But what about these Vietnamese? I mean, as I had my gun pointed at them and I was getting prepared to shoot at them, I was praying and interceding and saying, Oh God, reveal yourself. Have mercy on these people. And I was praying and interceding. And I was feeling the love of God for me. And I was feeling the love of God flow through me to these people. And it was just a wonderful experience. That's what I experienced. But 20 years later, reading it through the eyes of another person, I experienced the way a lost person would have thought. And the contrast was just, I mean, it was dramatic. And I'm telling you, some of you think you can't live the way you're talking about. Well, don't wake me up because this is the way I'm living. I'm telling you, this is my testimony. I have been through things that in the natural, if I didn't, if I wasn't focused on God, I wouldn't have had perfect peace. But just exactly like the scripture says, because my mind was stayed upon God, I had perfect peace in the very midst of a situation where people were trying to kill me. 
You know, I've been through things. I've been kidnapped. I've been threatened to be killed. I've been spit on. I've been maligned. I've had a lot of things happen to me, and I can tell you that I am one happy camper. I am not limping through life with all of the hurt and the pain and all of these kind of things. Just like the Scripture says, you consider Jesus the author and the finisher of your faith, and it keeps you from fainting, and it keeps you from being weary. I'm saying that you can be so focused on God that nothing else matters. Let me give you another example of this over in Acts chapter 7 is the instance where Stephen, he was a uh, he was a deacon, one of the very first deacons that was established in the church. And in Acts chapter 7, he was brought before the Sanhedrin and they asked him uh, to give an account of what he was doing. And he just basically preached the gospel, went all the way back through the Old Testament and showed through Moses, Abraham, everybody that Jesus is the Messiah that was prophesied and and um, he gave a powerful testimony, but it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 54, it says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. You know, I could spend more time on this, but real quickly, let me just say that this is significant that Jesus was standing because the Scripture clearly says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. The very fact that He was standing and the Lord opened up the heavens and Stephen saw this. You know what this was? Jesus was honoring His man who was standing for Him and giving a testimony. He stood up off the throne to honor Stephen, and then opened up the heavens so that Stephen could see it. And when he saw these things, it says that the people, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul, who later became the apostle Paul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You know what happened? This is exactly what I was talking about, that he was so focused on God. He was looking at God. And because he saw the heavens open, and he was basically in the presence of God, it just put him in a bubble, just like what I was describing for me in Vietnam, that he was being stoned to death. He was having these huge boulders hit him. They killed him. And yet, it was like he was immune to this. I know some of you think that this, you can't live this way. Just because people don't live this way doesn't mean it can't happen. I'm testifying that it happened to me. I'm showing you in Scripture that this happened to Stephen. You can get so God-centered. You can be so focused on God that even though people reject you, even though everything around you is failing, you are just so focused on God that God's compensation, His acceptance, His love overwhelms anything that comes against you. I've had people spit in my face. I've had people come up and say terrible things to me. And you know, I don't mean this disrespectful, but compared to God, these people who have persecuted me and rejected me are nothing. I've told people that before. I had a guy come up one time and just start reaming me out and I just stopped him in the middle of it and I said, who died and made you God? 
And the guy just looked at me like, what do you mean? And I said, I don't care about your opinion. You're nobody. And this guy got very offended. Well, how dare you say that? And I said, compared to God, you're nobody. God loves me. God is pleased with me. And I just don't give a rip what you think. And this guy got very offended and walked off. But you know what? That's the way that I am. I am focused on God. I'm considering Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. And even though you may not like me, God loves me. God carries my picture in his wallet. He's got an eight by ten of me on his mantle in heaven. God's pleased with me. God takes pleasure in me. That's what it says in the Bible. He takes pleasure in those that fear the Lord. He takes pleasure in those who are His. And I am His and I fear Him. And God's pleased with me. And because God loves me, who are you? You know what? I'll get criticism. I get criticism all the time. If criticism would kill you, I'd be dead. I'm going to have people criticize me and there'll be people who say you aren't sensitive. You don't understand the hurts of people and all these things. I'm not saying that I don't acknowledge that people are having a hard time and people suffer and people go through pain and things like this. I acknowledge that that happens. But what I'm saying is that the compensation from God is infinitely greater than whatever you're suffering. And if you are being overwhelmed by your suffering, I'm not saying that if you suffer that something is wrong and you've sinned. We live in a fallen world and problems will come against you. But I am saying that if you're being overwhelmed by those problems, if you are weary and fainting in your mind, if you are losing your joy, if your love is waxing cold, it is because you are putting more attention, you're paying more attention to your problems than you are to God who is the answer to your problems. And when you get focused on God, you'll be just like Stephen. And even though they're stoning you to death, even though the the terrible injustice of what's going on all around you, you could see Jesus honoring you, standing in honor of you. And I guarantee you, His acceptance will be just like a tsunami that overwhelms you and takes away anything that stands in its path. It doesn't matter if you're facing death. It doesn't matter if you're facing rejection. It doesn't matter if you're facing eviction. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. I'm telling you that God's compensation is infinitely greater. Regardless of how bad things are in this world, things are infinitely greater and good in God's world. And if you were to focus upon that, then if you keep your mind stayed upon the Lord, He will keep you in perfect peace. That's it. There are no exceptions to that. It doesn't matter what you're going through. Paul and Silas were thrown in the prison and at midnight in the stocks with their back beaten in the dungeon with no light. I'm sure there were rats. There were varmints in there. It was just a terrible situation. They started singing and praising God. And they didn't sing and praise God just so that the power of God could come and they could get delivered from their problem and leave. Because when the earthquake came and their bonds were loosed, they didn't leave. They kept singing. Isn't that amazing that somebody could praise God because they actually meant it? Not that they were using it as a tool, a stepping stone to something else. But you could actually get to where you love God so much that you just love Him. Even though you're beaten, even though you're in the stocks, even though they're talking about killing you. You just can't help it. You're just so in love with God. I'm telling you, you can become positive in a negative world. And I'm going to continue to share this until, praise God, I believe you get it. I've used this analogy before, but 
I think it bears repeating that you take a frog and put them in cold water and then warm it up gradually. They'll stay in it until they boil to death. But you put a frog into hot water and it would just instantly jump out. But if you do it gradually, it will adjust to it and literally stay until it kills it. And I think that this is what's happened, that we have just gradually seen our world become more and more negative Of course, there's always been ungodliness and terrible things going on, but with the advancement in technology that we have, we now have the problems of the world, every mean, rotten, spirited thing done around the world piped into our home and we get exposed to it on a daily basis. And I think that we've become so accustomed to it that I want to be a herald standing here saying that this is damaging, it's dangerous, we need to stop it, and you need to counter this negativism that's in the world. It will destroy you. Jesus talked about this, that in the last days, Matthew 24, 12, that the love of many will wax cold because iniquity is abounding. Jesus said that, and he didn't say the love of a few. He didn't say that this is something that could happen. He says it is going to happen And it's because iniquity is abounding. So there is a direct relationship to the culture that we live in and the effect that it has on us. We aren't doomed to this. We can overcome it. I've used a lot of scriptures already on that. And of course, we're going to cover a lot more. Let me use uh, Lot as an example of what I'm talking about. Here in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter is writing about Lot. And uh, I'm breaking right into the middle of uh, some things that he said here. But in verse 4, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overflow, making them an example unto those that should after live ungodly, and delivered just Lot. You know, this word here is not talking about that he delivered only Lot, because that's not true. Lot actually came out with his wife and with his two daughters. Of course, his wife turned around behind her and... Uh, looked at the city which the Lord told them not to do. He said, flee, don't turn around, don't look. Well, she disobeyed the instructions of the angels. She turned around, and when she turned around, she turned into a pillar of salt. You know, here's a little parenthetical uh, thing before I get back into this, but my kids, when they were little, they were at church, and, you know, they went to children's church, and after church we were sitting around eating lunch, and we were trying to get them to talk, and they were just interested in eating. And we said, so what went on in children's church? And they wouldn't hardly say anything. It was just yes and no answers. And so finally, I asked my oldest son, I said, Joshua, what happened in church? What did they talk about? And he said, oh, they talked about Lot. And his wife turned around and turned into a pillar of salt. And I said, well, didn't you say anything? And he said, I told him that that's nothing. My mother was driving one time and turned around and looked behind her and turned into a telephone pole. <laughs> and he was serious. He, that's what he thought when she turned into a pillar of salt was. But anyway, uh, Lot's wife turned around. So this, when it says that it delivered just Lot, it wasn't talking about that Lot was the only one that got delivered. This is talking about that he was a just man. And you can see that. In the next verse down here, in verse 7, it says, "...and delivered just Lot, 
vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be uh, punished. And it goes on. But notice, this is talking about Lot. And for those of you that aren't familiar with this story, it starts over in Genesis chapter 12 where Abraham was called by God to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go into a land that he would later reveal. And he left, but he took Lot, his nephew, with him. In the 14th chapter of the book of Genesis, or excuse me, I guess it's the 13th chapter of Genesis, Lot and Abraham became so prosperous and had so many cattle and so many herds and flocks that they couldn't dwell together. And so Abram was the one that was blessed and he told Lot, he says, you just look at the whole land and you pick the best of the land. Whichever way you go, I'll go the opposite direction. And before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, it says over there in Genesis that it was like the Garden of Eden. It was lush. It was beautiful. It was tremendous pasture land for all of your animals. And so Lot chose Sodom and Gomorrah and went down there because of the benefit that it had to him in his cattle and sheep and things like that. You know, here is a great truth. That Lot chose prosperity and the physical, natural things that would help him with his flocks over spiritual things. Sodom and Gomorrah was a wicked place. And of course, most people are familiar with that. The city was totally given over to idolatry. In the 19th chapter of the book of Genesis is where God sent two angels down and uh, they found that the entire city was given over to homosexuality. They even tried to come and have sex with these two angels that God sent into Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it was just a pagan, ungodly place and yet Lot chose it because of the financial benefit that it would have to him and his herds. Boy, there is a direct parallel here. Maybe you are looking for advancement in your career and stuff. And so you get an opportunity to move across the country or to a different nation or whatever it is. And you have these great opportunities where there's promotion and increased income. And many of you make your decision based solely on your job opportunities and chance for promotion. And you don't even take into account, uh, is there a good church there? Maybe you're in a church right now that you love, that your kids love, that your kids have friends and all of these kind of things. And yet most people would totally put their career ahead of anything else and use that as the sole determining factor about how they're going to move and how they're going to uh, live their life. That's what Lot did. And because of it, he entered into a place that was totally given over to idolatry, to homosexuality, all of these kind of things. And as a result, these verses, this is amazing. It says that he delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. The word conversation here is talking about more than just the words that came out of their mouth. It includes that. But the word conversation in the Bible is talking about a manner of life or a lifestyle. So they had a filthy lifestyle. And notice it says that this vexed Lot... He was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. In the next verse it says, For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. This word vexed, if you look it up, is actually talking about it's like casting a spell 
a hex on a person. It's a demonic thing. It's witchcraft. And this is saying that in seeing and hearing the unlawful deeds of other people, it vexes your soul. It like it casts a spell. It takes away your ability to perceive and understand things properly. I tell you, we live in an ungodly world. And I believe that the ungodliness that has been throughout all generations is actually showcased and amplified, magnified more in our culture because of television, because of news, because of the Internet, because of all of the things that are available. We just have all of the sewage of the world that is just dumped in our homes and in our lives and in our minds on a daily basis. And many of you do not believe that that's really that bad. You know, keep your finger here. I'm not through, but let me turn over to a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I know that there are some of you saying, well, I admit that there's a lot of bad stuff out there, and I admit that, man, we just are exposed to this stuff on a constant basis, but I'm strong, and it just doesn't bother me. Let me share this scripture with you out of 1 Corinthians 15, 33. It says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. If you're one of those that's saying, Well, I'm aware that it's pretty bad, but I'm strong and I can handle it. You're deceived. You are deceived. Evil communication, and again, communication here is talking about more than just words. It includes that, but it's talking about a manner of life as expressed in words, actions, all kinds of ways. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And if you don't agree with that, if you think that you're strong and it's not corrupting you, then you're deceived. Man, those are strong, strong statements. But before I get into talking about how you overcome this and how you set things right and how you stay positive in the midst of a negative world, until you recognize how severe the problem is, until you get a diagnosis that tells you you're about to be deceived by this, you're being vexed by the filthy conversation, until you get the cure, you've got to understand how bad the situation is. And just like Lot... Lot went down to a place that I'm sure was against his convictions. It says right here that Lot was a righteous man. He was a godly man. This was a man that loved God. And yet he was vexed by seeing and hearing the ungodly conversation, manner of life of people on a daily basis. And yet he exposed himself and his family to this because of the financial benefit that it had to him. I'm not saying this to condemn you. I'm saying it trying to help you. I'm trying to let you know that compromising your convictions because after all, this is the way it is and you just don't want to be looked at as being so weird or so extreme. Most people have this herd mentality and they are seeking for acceptance so much that they have to conform. Like when you go to be with your family, your family thinks you're a weirdo. They think you're a fanatic and so you let down your standards. You compromise. You do things that you wouldn't normally do because after all, you just have this drive to be accepted. I think that this goes all the way back to the garden that God created man for fellowship. He did not create us for rejection. I don't believe anybody likes rejection. I don't like it. I wish that everybody liked me, but they don't. 
And I don't like the fact that, you know, there's people that criticize me and say things about me, but I've come to grips with it and I've come to realize that just being like everybody else, if I want to be accepted by everybody else and if I expose myself to the same things that they do, garbage in, garbage out. As I think in my heart, that's the way it's going to be. If I want to think and watch the same things that everybody else watches and be just like them, I'm going to get the same results as they want. There are many of you that want different results. You want health. You want victory. You want peace. You want power. You want joy. You want to walk in the power of God. You want to be pleasing to God. But then you're going to do and watch and listen to and read the exact same stuff as the people who aren't seeking God and who aren't well and who aren't prosperous. I'm telling you, that's just crazy. There is going to be a separation. You are going to suffer persecution. And there are some people that would rather just have this herd mentality and go with the herd, even though they're all plunging off the cliff. You know, I read a thing on the Internet. I saw this thing about uh, weird things that had happened with animals or something. I looked it up and I forget the exact number, but I think it was 750 or 7,000 or something like this wildebeest that just went off this cliff and drowned trying to cross this thing. They just have this herd mentality. And, and even after seeing hundreds and hundreds of other uh, animals die, they just continued to do it. And sad to say, there's a lot of people that just have this herd mentality and they're going to walk in step with everybody else. They're going to watch the same shows. They're going to do the same things that are killing other people and then wonder why it isn't working for them. This is exactly what happened to Lot. Lot went down to a very ungodly place and submitted himself to all of this ungodliness and submitted his family to it. And you know, you'd have to turn back over to Genesis chapter 19. I'm not going to take time to do that. But if you go back and study the story of Lot, these two angels, once they saw that the city was just totally given over to homosexuality, they decided that they were going to bring judgment on it and they were going to destroy it. And so they told Lot to go get any family members that he could. Now, he had two daughters that lived with him at home, but it says he went out to his daughters and sons-in-law. So that means he had other daughters. He had more than the two that escaped. He had others that had married people in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it says that his speech to them was as idle tales. They mocked him. You know why? Because his daughters had grown up in that ungodly culture. And when the destruction of God came on Sodom and Gomorrah, his, his daughters that stayed in Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. His sons-in-law were destroyed. If he had any grandchildren, they were killed. You know, people look and, and they say, but I've got a promotion. They're going to give me twice the pay over here. And so you go there not even thinking about what the spiritual condition is like. What is this going to do to your family and other things? I'm telling you that your finances are not the driving force in your life. And I know what I'm saying here sounds like I'm from another planet because in our society, it's all materialistic. It's just get all you can, can all you get, and then sit on your can. But I'm telling you that there are things more important than your job promotion, 
You need to evaluate other things and you need to recognize that if you are putting yourself and your family into an ungodly situation that you will be vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. That's exactly what these scriptures says. And over in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, you're deceived if you think that you can put yourself and your family into ungodliness and not have it corrupt your good manners. If you put a rotten apple in with a good, a bunch of good apples, the rotten apple doesn't become good, but the good apples become rotten. If you take somebody who's infected with the disease and put them next to a well person, the diseased person doesn't get well, the well person receives that disease and infection. In our fallen world, things don't go from bad to good. They go from good to bad And it's like gravity. It's just a constant force that is pulling on you. And we can take a lesson right here. This is the reason he's saying this. He's saying that you need to take a lesson. Matter of fact, I think it's over in the book of James. It says, remember Lot's wife. It said, use her as an example. Remember how that she just couldn't let go of her children, her grandchildren, her possessions, her things. I'm sure that Lot was a very prosperous man. He was so prosperous that that's the reason that he and Abraham had to split uh, uh, ways because they couldn't feed their cattle. The ground wouldn't sustain them. And I'm sure that he prospered financially. They probably had the nicest house in town. They had all of these things. And Lot's wife just couldn't let go of them. It changed her. It vexed her. Lot prospered financially. But it cost him his children... It cost him his wife. It cost him grandchildren, if he had grandchildren. It cost him everything that he had. Eventually, he lost all of those herds and flocks and the house and everything that he had. His two daughters, when he came out, even though that their life was spared, they said that now, you know, God had destroyed everybody on the face of the earth, which wasn't true. And I don't believe that they necessarily believed it. But nonetheless, here was their reasoning. They said that, you know, now our father is the only man left on the face of the earth, and so we need to preserve seed. And so they got Lot drunk, and while he was drunk, each one of them went in and had sex with their father, an incestual relationship. They enticed him into it, and they both became pregnant and had children by their own father. These were the values that were instilled in his children, and yet this calls Lot a righteous man. These weren't the values of Lot. I'm sure that Lot tried to teach his children the proper values, but as this scripture shows, that they became overwhelmed with the ungodliness of the culture around them. And it cost him not only his wife and daughters and sons-in-law and children that stayed in Sodom and Gomorrah, but then his two daughters that lived, they became where incest was just a normal thing. It was not bad to them. Their values were changed. I tell you, we live in an ungodly culture. There's a lot of good things that God is doing, but if you just look at our culture, our culture is promoting things. Your grandparents would think that the things you watch on television is pornography, that the books that you read are absolute just smut, that the magazines that you have, the advertisements in there would be considered pornography 50 years or less ago, and yet you allow your children to see all of these kind of things. I'm telling you, things are changing. And many of us, it's happened gradually 
our hearts have waxed cold and we don't even realize what it's doing to us. So the very first thing I'm doing in this series talking about how to stay positive in a negative world is just to show you how deadly the influence and the culture around you can be. I'm not saying it has to be that way. You do not have to be overcome by it. I believe that you can stay positive in a negative world and that's what I'm going to continue to teach on. But until you recognize that this is life-threatening, just like Lot, there are many of you that have just allowed yourself to be immersed into this culture And because it doesn't happen instantly, you don't jump out, you don't get free from it. You have allowed this to happen and you are losing your life. You're losing your family. You're losing everything precious that God has given us because we have just been inundated with the ungodliness of this world. And I'm sounding a signal and trying to wake us up and say that we need to do something. We need to do something now. We need to do things to change our culture, but that's a long-term change Ultimately, the thing starts with you changing your heart, with you learning how to be positive in a negative world. And only when you begin to start succeeding and flowing in the power of God and being positive and operating in faith instead of fear, only when you begin to start dealing with yourself can you change somebody else. You can't set somebody else free if you aren't free. And so we need to recognize how serious this is. Man, I pray that you study this here in in 2 Peter chapter 2 and go back to Genesis 19 and read this and see how this ungodliness costs lots so much. And I tell you, it's doing the same thing in our culture. We need to be aware of this. We need to take evasive action or we are going to find ourselves being destroyed by these exact same things.